All right, let us come together to begin our last class in this session. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us all together and permitting us to have the time and the ability, the freedom to speak our mind and our heart in a subject that is dear to all of us, our faith. We thank you for so many graces and blessings of what we've learned, of what we've straightened out, and hopefully a new direction that we might embark on. So we ask your blessing on our efforts tonight, and as we go forward, uh, living the Christian life as Paul has outlined for us. We thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Well, tonight being our last meeting of this session, I uh, hope that you've all done your homework of reading the last uh, three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, all of which I'm sure you'll find uh, or have found that St. Paul is much more conciliatory and uh, friendly uh, in these chapters than he certainly was in the beginning. Uh, if you recall, I said that he was uh, sort of on fire with this new concept uh, that he had, that had been revealed to him, uh, the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it should permeate our lives and affect our conduct in all respects. Unfortunately, so many Catholics, uh, or Christians in general, do not understand that. Uh, they say, well, religion is a private thing, and I'm not going to uh, wear it on my sleeve, so to speak. And yet, that is what we are actually uh, not only encouraged to do, but told to do by Christ himself. But all of it in the context of love of God and love of neighbor. Christ is not telling us to beat somebody over the head, uh, trying to convince him or her uh, that the Catholic way is the only way. Uh, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That's the furthest thing that you would want to do. Uh, just as a little aside, I remember uh, years ago when I was a little kid riding in the back seat of my father's car and my grandmother was there. My father was taking him to her somewhere. I don't remember. It doesn't make any difference. And of course, I was leaning over the back seat listening to every word, you know. And at one point in time, my grandmother said to my father, uh, Al, is that a Catholic church up there or not? And he says, well, Mother, I don't really think so. And she says, well, I'm not going to look then. <laughs> well, you know, that's going a little too far. Uh, but years ago, that's the way many people thought. And years ago, that's the way many priests and nuns taught us. 
But that has never really been the teaching of the church. Love of God and love of neighbor uh, is preeminent over all other concepts. All right? And Paul finally gets around to that uh, towards the end of this long letter uh, to the Romans. So what I'd like to do tonight is to go through some of the uh, details of chapter 14, uh, which is really uh, 14 and 15 are pretty much a continuation. But there are some important points here that I think uh, we should review. And in many ways, there are some things in here that you've probably heard from his other letters. Remember uh, that the dissemination of these letters took years, not just days or weeks. Today, you know, you can write a letter and it gets all over the world in five minutes by the Internet. Well, obviously, uh, no such thing back in the time of Paul. So he would write and would repeat many of the concepts that he held dear in his various letters, not expecting them to be read daily or at least every week on Sunday uh, in uh, hundreds and thousands of churches all over the world. That was the furthest thing from his mind at the time. But God knew. All right. And his letters, along with all of the other books of the Bible, though written by men, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I think we have a great deal of inspiration in this letter to the, to the Romans. So let us proceed. <clears throat> Now, he has been already talking about Christian conduct in the earlier uh, chapters. So this is reads like a continuation, which it really is. Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but not for disputes over opinions. Like I said, you don't want to beat somebody over the head trying to make them a convert. <clears throat> one person believes that one may eat anything while... The weak person eats only vegetables. Ah, they had vegans in those days too, eh? <clears throat> the one who eats must not despise the one who abstains. And the one who abstains must not pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on someone else's servant? Before his own master he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For one person considers one day more important than the other, while another person considers all the days alike. And that's really true today when Sunday is not much different than any other day, uh, according to many people. Uh, you know, they cut the lawn and rake the leaves and uh, do all those manual uh, tasks rather than spending a little time with the Lord. But we can't look down upon them because maybe they work six days a week out of necessity and they only have one day a week to do some of the chores around the house. Secondly, uh, we can't look down upon them either because sometimes doing gardening work or something that is totally different than what you do the rest of the week 
is relaxing and enjoyable for that individual. I live in a condo, so I don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of go on. Also, whoever will, I'm, uh, one of the things I'd like to do is get down to verse 7 here. None of us lives for oneself, and no one dies for oneself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's an important statement, and you know, it's kind of a mouthful the way he words it here. But the fact is, we are not total masters of our own lives or our own bodies. You hear, particularly in the women's movement, uh, not as much today as it was years ago when uh, abortion first became legal and so forth, that uh, a woman's right was to do whatever she wanted with her body. And that is totally against all Christian principles. All right? Totally against the teachings of the church as well as God himself. And so we have to be very careful about that. Our bodies are not totally our own. Yes, we must take care of them, uh, but there are limits. Boy, this is why this is why Christ died and came to life, <clears throat> that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So why then do you judge your brothers? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bend before me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So each of us shall give an account of himself to God. A lot of people are really concerned about that. Uh, and they should be. They should be. But if you live according to the teachings of Christ, God, the church, you needn't worry. And if in the past there has been something that uh, you are not totally uh, proud of and have confessed it in a good uh, confession, then there's nothing to worry about. The whole idea is people worry about things that are long past and that they can do nothing about. Confession does a tremendous amount of good uh, to alleviate the worry. Consideration for the weak conscience. Then let us no longer judge one another, but rather resolve to put a stump we resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, it is unclean for someone who thinks it is it unclean. Now, that's a little bit of a mumble-jumble there. But if you go back to the Acts of the Apostles, there's a very good example in there where... St. Peter 
uh, who, of course, was living at that uh, the time of this vision or apparition, uh, still felt that uh, certain foods, uh, particularly certain meats, were unclean and unfit uh, for a good Jew to eat. And God uh, had this vision for him where sheep comes down and it has all kinds of animals in there that are normally eaten, uh, including uh, pigs and whatever else. And Peter is told to slaughter and eat. And he said, oh, no, no, he couldn't do that. And finally, uh, he was told that whatever God made was good and worthy uh, of our consideration as food. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to like it. Uh, that doesn't mean that if there is uh, a choice, we can take something else. But we are not to classify anything as uh, unclean or unworthy uh, of consideration. Do not, because of your food, destroy him for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be reviled. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by others. So let us then pursue what leads to peace and to building up one another. For the sake of food, do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to become a stumbling block by eating. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There's an example of this also in uh, the Acts of the Apostles where Peter, once he had this vision and got it past his mind and heart that it was acceptable to eat uh, things that were totally uh, forbidden for Jewish people and he began to associate and eat with Gentiles uh, Paul noticed that when there were Jews around Peter would hold back and not partake of some of the food that the Gentiles pre uh, prepared. So Paul called him to task, and they had a good little Dunnybrook, you might say, uh, over what was right and what was wrong. And finally, uh, Peter sort of uh, backed down to Paul. Um, those two uh, brilliant men didn't quite see eye to eye all the time. Okay? And it's kind of interesting in a way how they uh, still manage to uh, be the first princes of the church. Okay. And of course, we always celebrate their feast days together. The feast of St. Peter and St. Paul is uh, June the 29th. For the sake of, uh, let's see, let's go on. Keep the faith that you have to yourself in the presence of God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because this is not from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. 
Now, that's a little confusing statement right there, isn't it? All right. Um, it's sort of a uh, double negative in a way, you might say. If a person has all along believed that a certain thing was sinful, a certain act or whatever was sinful, and then learns that it is, well, he doesn't learn that it isn't yet. Um, he goes ahead and does it, does it anyways because he sees other people uh, doing it and learns then that it is not sinful. But because he did it while he thought it was sinful, then for him it was sinful. Norm, do you have a question? For him, yes. Yes, that's right. If a person commits a sin or com- commits an act that he thinks is sinful and he does it with the full knowledge that to him it was sinful, then it was even though he was perhaps mistaken. That's what it means. I had a big question mark there myself, and I had to do a little research on that one. Patience and self-denial. Oh, here's something that uh, we are all sort of uh, lacking. Patience is one of those virtues that... uh, I wished I had more of right away. <clears throat> we who are strong not to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please our neighbor for the good, for building up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. For whatever was written previously was written for our instruction that by endurance and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Down at the bottom of this, uh, in the commentary on page 90, there's a number of points being made here that I think are worth uh, our review. Direct speech is augmentative and confrontational, while figurative speech is elusive and evocative. Direct speech needs proof, while figurative speech invites the hearer to establish its veracity by self-application. Wow, that's a mouthful in itself, isn't it? I might add that Paul's two diatribal questions in 14.4 and 10 help him to get his listeners to apply his teachings to themselves. Well, that's uh, sort of much ado about nothing, and in a way, um, it's sort of semantics, and I'm not going to get bothered with that. It says, if this lengthy passage doesn't deal with specific questions in the Roman house churches, then what's it all about? It's about the principles to be applied in those multiple situations that involve 
indifferent matters. And I had to kind of give some thought about what are indifferent matters. All right. Um, that is not questions of faith and morals, but things that are picky. All right. Let's put it that way. Not really important issues, but kind of picky. And you know that there's some people <coughs> that will argue about anything just for the sake of arguing. And that's not what he's talking about. Down at the bottom of that paragraph, it says, and this is what justification by faith looks like when it sits down at table in Christian fellowship. If we hold back our opinions that might be contrary to others, then we are exercising what it says here, the principles of Christian conduct. And that's what it's important. The whole idea is being cautious in all respects. <coughs> Pardon me. Verse 7, 15 verse 7. Welcome one another then as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises to the patriarchs, but so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. For it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let uh, all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, raised up to rule the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, the root of Jesse was whom? David. King David. That's right. And David was sort of a precursor or a, a figure of, of the, the Christ or the Messiah to come. Okay. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of this last two chapters are really about Christian conduct. And it's important that we take it to heart. Uh, over on uh, the commentary on page 91, right in the very middle, is a sentence that I think is important. It says, finally, in chapter 15, verse 19 to 12, that's the ones we just wrote, read, he appeals uh, to all sacred writ, the law, the prophets, and the writings, to show the universality of God's welcome. Now, the law, the prophets, and the writings is the Old Testament. This is what the Jewish people call it then and now. They generally do not call it the Old Testament because 
obviously they don't recognize the New Testament. And therefore, for them, the word Old Testament wouldn't have any meaning. So they refer to the Jewish scriptures as the law, the prophets, and the writings. So that's what he's talking about. And of course, as you know, uh, from the earlier chapters, Paul has stated over and over that the Mosaic Law no longer applies uh, to Christians because the death and resurrection of Christ has replaced the law as a guide to salvation. The law was intended in its rightful place for the Jewish people as the foundation of the Jewish faith. And had the Jewish people accepted Christ as their Messiah, they would have gradually seen how the teachings of Christ replaced the Mosaic Law. Unfortunately, they didn't. And there, but we did. We took much of the Old Testament and use it in our liturgies and our faith today. So it isn't, hasn't been just sort of done away with. We are still using it, but it doesn't, it is not the primary road to salvation. The belief, the faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the primary key to heaven. I myself am convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I have written to you rather boldly in some respects, he sure has, uh, to remind you because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul started out with preaching to the Jews. But because the Jews knew who he was prior to becoming a Christian, they couldn't accept him. And, of course, they couldn't accept his message. And so they just refused to listen to him altogether. And so he turned them to the Gentiles. All right, because that is what he felt was the right thing to do. Um, but being a good Jew, you know, you just can't change overnight. I want to go over to uh, verse 22 on the next page. And that is why I have so often been prevented from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any opportunity in these regions, and since I have desired to come to you for many years, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be sent on my way there by you, after I have enjoyed being with you for a time. Now, however, I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the Holy Ones. For Macedonia and Archaea have decided to make some contributions for the poor 
among the holy ones in Jerusalem. Uh, the little background on this is that in Jerusalem there was um, a persecution uh, taking place uh, by the Jews against the Christians. And the way it was being carried out, since they were not allowed to uh, put anyone to death, the way it was carried out was they would refuse to sell anything. Uh, they would refuse to employ any Christian. Uh, bartering was totally out of the question. And so these people were starving. And so through black markets, I would assume, because that would be the only alternative, uh, and a very high price, uh, they would at least obtain some food. All right. But there was uh, quite a persecution going on. And that, of course, is what sparked the uh, war with the Romans uh, that began in 66 A.D. and went uh, through to 70 A.D., uh, culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in the struggle uh, by your prayers to God on, on my behalf. Paul wanted desperately to go to Spain and continue his development and establishment of house churches. And he was hoping that uh, through this letter, he would at least introduce himself uh, to the Spanish, uh, to the Roman people, who would then uh, support him, not only financially, but with assistance, uh, with transportation, uh, with other material goods that would be necessary. You know, people of Paul's kind, who traveled and preached at the same time, uh, didn't do that alone. They had an entourage that would help them and take care of their needs while they spent most of the time uh, preaching and teaching. Okay. Chapter 16 is pretty much a, a farewell type of chapter. Um, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is also a minister of the church at uh, whatever this town is. <laughs> I uh, What's that? Yeah. Uh, well, whatever. <laughs> Probably doesn't exist any longer. <laughs> that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the Holy Ones and help her in whatever uh, she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor to many and to me as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Uh, Prisca is sort of the Roman version of Priscilla that we often hear about. Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. Uh, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I am grateful, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, greet also the church at their house. Greet my beloved uh Whatever, whatever. Who was the first fruits in Asia for Christ? Greet Mary, at least I can pronounce that one, uh, who has worked hard for you. Yeah. Why, well, some of these uh, 
And we think of our sports people today having weird names. Wow. Uh, my relatives and my fellow prisoners, they are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me, etc. These are all sort of very closing uh, personal statements, which I think is important. But, you know, you would think that you, he would finally end up by saying uh, goodbye and good luck or uh, I'll see you around or something. Uh, but then <laughs> over on uh, page 95, he starts up again. You know? Sounds like some of our uh, modern uh, preachers here. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who create dissensions and obstacles. In opposition to the teachings that you learn, avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the innocent. For while, for while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise as to what is good and simple as to what is evil. And then the God of peace will quickly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yes. That last sentence there. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter. Yes. Paul is not writing. Paul didn't write most of his letters. Yeah. So this would be his scribe. In a way, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. What Dick is asking here is uh, the the last sentence in the scripture part there on page ninety five. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is etc. Alright. Uh, yes. There's only one letter, and I forgot which one it is now, uh, where Paul says, you know, you offhand know which one of those letters? Hmm? Uh, no, no, it wasn't Galatians. It's one of the other ones. Anyways, there's only one letter that we know of where Paul says, and I take by my, I, I write by my own hand, uh, this last farewell or, or words to that effect. No, most of the letters, and this is not unusual. Most of the letters of Paul and almost all of the other writers of the New Testament were written by scribes. And they would, uh, the author would actually dictate, uh, but the scribe would then adjust and sort of clean up and so forth and so on. Um, and it would generally come out better than what was dictated. That's not unusual. In fact, I was reading something just today about uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, they said it's very unlikely that Matthew wrote that Gospel. The only one that was probably uh, written by the person that we recognize as the author was Luke. Because Luke was an educated man and uh, he kind of alludes to that right up in front uh, of both the gospel and uh, the Acts of the Apostles, that he himself wrote it. Uh, even John. And we can tell because John wrote uh, 
the book of Revelation and the first and second letter of John, and you'll find that the style is different in all three or four of them. Yeah. But the content is pretty much the same. It's the style of how words are put together and so forth is different. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you, and so does Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, and my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you also. Now to him who can strengthen you according to my gospel. Uh, this is not a gospel in a traditional sense. It is good news. All right. And that's why it's not capitalized. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages, but now manifested through the prophetic writings and according to the command of the eternal God made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so ends the letter to the Romans. Now, let's take some time and review what not only this was all about, but what this whole program for this session was about. You take this little write-up that I did, review and summary, and we'll go through it. And if you have any questions, let us know. The man we call St. Paul came from a background that would sound as far away from Christianity as one could get in the first century A.D. He was born in the Roman province of Tarsus, which is now in modern-day Turkey, of a Roman father and a strict law-abiding Jewish mother. He was raised in a strict Jewish household until about the age of 13. At that time, he was sent to Jerusalem to be educated by the prominent Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. And that's referenced in Paul's words in Acts 22, verse 3. From that time until we hear about Paul again, he is now approximately 30 years of age, engaged in rounding up Christians whom he considered as traitors and enemies of Judaism. He was at the stoning of St. Peter, and I mean, at St. Stephen, excuse me, and apparently approved of it, if not actually instigating the stoning. The next time we hear about Paul is when he is on his way to Damascus with authority to search out and return to Jerusalem, any and all who were following the new way of Christianity. It was at this time that Jesus Christ intervenes in Paul's life and appears to him in a blinding light, throwing him from his horse. This scene is depicted several times in the Acts of the Apostles, 
and in Paul's letter to the Galatians and really elsewhere. After this encounter with the risen Christ and subsequent conversion at baptism, Paul goes to Arabia for a time, referenced in Galatians 1.17. And there he has a revelation of what he is to do and to preach. Paul clearly discloses that he did not get his knowledge and understanding of all things regarding Christianity from the apostles or anyone other, any other human being. Rather, all that he learned and taught came from the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to know and to accept because it gives Paul's teaching a measure of divine authenticity. And what did Paul teach? If you kind of look back at both of these letters here, his entire objective was to promote the benefits to mankind of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and how they were the climax of God's plan of salvation. The primary purpose of Jesus coming to earth and dying for all mankind. As a result of Paul's understanding, he declared that the Mosaic Law was no longer accepted as the primary guide to the worship of God. It has now been replaced by the death of Jesus and our baptism into and acceptance of baptism as the key to salvation. From this personal act on the part of each of us, there is a code of conduct that must be followed based on the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. These are not laws in the same way or same vein of the Mosaic law. Rather, they are voluntary offerings. However, their acceptance by God is based on the degree of sincerity and humility with which they are offered. We know that Paul traveled constantly preaching and teaching at established house, establishing house churches over a wide range of territory in the Mideast and Eastern Europe and had hopes of going as far as Spain. However, this did not happen. For all his efforts and accomplishments, he was martyred in the year 67 AD in Rome. The feasts of St. Peter's and Paul is celebrated on June the 29th. This is brief and, of course, overly perhaps simplistic, but I think it gives a good overall view of these two letters as you would, as you would want, first of all, and be able to digest at any one time. Obviously, when you get into the uh, letters themselves, there is a great deal of detail. But I think it all can be summarized pretty much as I have here. Any questions on that? Yes? We have a great deal of difficulty understanding Paul's letters. We? In general. Oh. You. Oh, okay. All right. And you know, we, have, we have our are theologians along the line who have helped us interpret them 
and understand them, and it takes study and work. So I envision when the Romans got the letter, did they really understand what Paul was saying? Uh, good question is right. In other words, what you're saying is, after all, 2,000 years, we don't understand it. When it was fresh and new, did they understand it? Uh, probably not. Because this was foreign conduct, foreign thinking, uh, to what they had been taught for centuries. I'm sure there's a lot of it. There's one level where you get a, a, an understanding, but then as you dig deeper and deeper, that's... That's, That's right. That I don't think they probably would have understood. No. Well, Catholics don't either, you know, unfortunately. Uh, most Catholics open uh, the Bible to Paul's letters, and after the first uh, chapter, they said, too deep for me, you know, and close it up. And that's unfortunate, because really, it isn't that deep. Once you really get into it and ask the Holy Spirit, to help you because that is what he should be doing but if we don't ask we're not going to get the help God is a very uh, generous and, and uh, cautious God you might say he's not going to impose himself unless you ask and that is something that few people fail to do or many people fail to do I should say Yeah, uh, we should always ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and hearts when we are studying Scripture. Yeah. But you're right. I, I kind of doubt that they understood it any better than we do. For the same reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, what Maria is saying really is that the majority of the people at that time were unable to read. That doesn't mean that they were uh, dumb or anything. It's just that they were uneducated and unable to read. And so they didn't have an opportunity. And that's true. But these kinds of letters were never intended uh, to be disseminated to the general public. These were always to the temple rulers and uh, the elite or the educated people, hoping that it would filter down eventually. And of course, that's true. That's the way it, it really worked out. But your point is, is well taken. Majority of people could not read. So that kind of eliminated, uh, many of them right off the bat. Yeah. Anyone else? Oh. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yes. Um, there's a lot of repetition, but the purpose, the objective of the letters differ. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Ye
not Romans, not the letter to the Romans, but some of the others, yes. That's definitely the case with some of the others. Uh, for example, Ephesians. Ephesians was often thought of being uh, a composite of three letters. All pretty much uh, on the same theme, and that is God's plan of salvation. But, yeah, there is some thought that uh, Ephesians was three letters, and some of the others were also composites. Uh, well, now he didn't say that in Romans. That was one of the other, one of the other letters. Uh, but you see, accuracy in the way we think of it today was non-existent in that time. A great deal of liberties were taken uh, with writing because so few people could write, uh, and therefore uh, accuracy as to historical. Uh, events and times. The way we think of it today, uh, you put out something that is not historically accurate and you'll get bombarded ten ways from Sunday uh, within days. Uh, there was no way to check it in Paul's time. Uh, and people knew that scribes uh, were used in most cases for educated documents of this kind. And that's why there is a statement in this one that Tertius uh, is actually doing the writing. But he's writing what Paul is telling him to write. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. What is that? Oh yeah, all right. First uh, Thessalonians, it says, the greeting is in my own hand. That's Paul's. That's the one I was thinking of here. Um, but that's just a small part of the letter is in his own hand. Not necessarily the whole letter. Thank you, John. See, you're not the only one. Not you now. Uh, okay. You mean you didn't follow all the pronouns? Well, I, I think you mean. I use the footnotes in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. And the study Bible, like John has over here, uh, that is, has a lot more notes. Yeah. Um, so those um, those Bibles that are considered the, the new American study Bible is what we recommend here because of the footnotes. All right. No, you're you're right. The writer of this commentary wasn't wasn't one of the great better ones. Yes. It's a it seems that every time Collegeville uh, changes, they get worse instead of better. 
At least that's the way I, I've looked at it. Uh, Deuteronomy was the same way. When we studied Deuteronomy a year ago, uh, I felt the previous one was much better than the current one. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Now I'd like to get on to a subject about what would you like to study in our next session beginning somewhere around the end of January, 1st of February. Okay. We had talked about a few things last week. I brought a few suggestions. Here is a similar book written by, the commentary is written by somebody else. Um, and this has five of Paul's letters in one book. Now, the bad thing, well, the unfortunate part of having five letters in here in a ten-week course that only allows us approximately uh, two sessions for each letter. But these are much shorter letters, much shorter. And some of them are very beautiful. I love Ephesians uh, and Philippians. Uh, and they have specific messages that differ from Romans quite a bit. So, this is one possibility. All right. This would take approximately ten weeks to cover the five letters in here. We had talked about saints. Here is a book. It's called Doctors of the Church, but these are all saints. There's 20, 32. Uh, 32 saints in here, which means that we would cover, you know, three or more in one meeting. That's a lot of reading, but it could be done. All right. Uh, the chapters are very brief and very clear. This is not a difficult book to understand. It is fairly new uh, by the Pope himself. Okay. Doctors of the Church. It helps you to understand how much of our, how many of our, uh, our doctrine has come about through these people here. Uh, I don't think we want to get into this one because this is a compilation of all of the uh, saints and even people who uh, might become saints uh, or declared saints, I should say. Um, in time, but it is a, if anyone is interested in reading more about the saints, I highly recommend this one, The Lives of the Saints by uh, Richard McBrien. He is the former uh, head of theology and religion at Notre Dame University, a very well-respected uh, writer and theologian. Okay. Uh, I don't think we want to get into something as heavy as this. Okay. But what is your pleasure? There's also another book like this that has only two letters. Paul's first and second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, they're also rather long like Romans. All right. They are the next. First Corinthians is the second longest one 
of all of Paul's letters. Second in line to Romans. Okay. So, what is your pleasure? The first one. Hmm? The five letters. All right. Huh? First and second Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. These are all very beautiful letters. Yeah. And not near as deep as Romans. Okay. Huh? Yes, yes. There would be a lot of of reading on this. No, no, no. Ephesians. Colossians and Ephesians. Yeah. Colossians is where we get a greater or a large portion of our Nicene Creed from. Uh, Ephesians is almost all based on God's plan of salvation. Come on, folks. It's up to you. Huh? The, the five letters? How many want the five letters? Okay. That's, that's this one here. Paul's letter to the various letters. Alright. This is Gail, yes? Uh, that's a possibility, yes. Alright. Gail's question is after if we do these five letters, the next session after that, uh, which would be approximately a year from now, would uh, be about the saints. <laughs> the doctors of the church anyone be interested in that oh my goodness gracious Uh, there would be approximately three, maybe four, in one week, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, some of these are really short. Yeah, some of them are really short. Um, uh, 260 pages. Yeah, 260 pages. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> going once, going twice. All right. The saints, let's really see your hands. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. I didn't count, but that looks like quite a few. 
How about the five letters? Um, not so many. All right. We shall do then the saints. All right. The doctors of the church. Now, this is going to cost you a little bit more money. Yeah. Now, we'll have, we'll have to charge $25 for the whole session. No discounts. <laughs> okay. All right. So, our next session then will, yes, Mary Lou. Um, I don't know if I can last that long. <laughs> uh, how many of you would be willing to extend the uh, next session by a couple weeks so that we wouldn't have as, you know, to cover? It seems like I don't see any problems here. Anybody uh, against it? Well, let me give it some thought. All right. What's that? We won't have the new facility. Well, no, that's for sure. We might never get them. Um, all right. Any other questions then that we might have or not have or whatever? All right. I hate to. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, your attending. It looks like we have a full house tonight, and that is kind of uh, a compliment to me as well as to you. So I want to thank each and every one of you for your attendance <coughs> and your interest in a rather difficult subject. I admit uh, and recognize that St. Paul's letters are not easy uh, it's probably just as well that we do the saints as a breather and then do the five letters the next time. Okay? All right. Colossians. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. If there are no other questions, let's end our session with a prayer. Thanking God for the many graces and blessings that he has given us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for all of the time that you have given us during this session. And all of the things that we have learned, whether it be fully or partially. But nevertheless... I think we have learned a great deal. We just cannot say thank you enough for the many graces and blessings that you have given us. And we ask that you continue to bless us and help us to develop a code of conduct along the lines of Paul's letter, but as you would want us to do. And may your Holy Spirit always be with us to guide us and direct us. So we thank you for this time.
We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.